1: My name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Forrest Shod. We're at Westry Wine in McMinnville. It's March 3rd, 2021. Forrest, thanks so much for joining us today. Absolutely. Uh, First question, most important question. Why wine? Why not wine? Uh,
2: It's ever-changing. I tried several other things, and they didn't fit. This has kept me pretty engaged. And I keep on chasing it. And you keep on having those moments that you learn from and humble you. Mm-hmm.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So tell me about the, the path before wine. Tell me about kind of bringing education and, and other things you tried. Well, I grew up uh, on the family farm, but in Seattle. So we came down reluctantly every other weekend to do work. Um, and so as soon as I got the opportunity to try to get away from it, I had to reach out that avenue <laughs> because farming at 18 didn't seem that appealing. So, um, my parents' rival college school was WSU, so I went there, um, tried a few different things, nothing really stuck it out, ended up working in a kitchen, doing dishes, being a line cook, um, and noticed that wine was a part of that culture, and at the same time was working for a tiny little winery, helping out, donating my time for harvest, you know, getting bottles is kind of like, thanks for your time and realized that, hey, you know, we got a tractor and land in Oregon. Maybe I'm in the wrong place entirely. So I uh, moved to McMinnville in 2007 and started trying to figure out the next step from there of what, uh, like, did I want wine? Did I want a farm? This place was quite a bit different 14 years ago um, not for better or worse. So it, it's been a growing process. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So at what point did you kind of decide all in into wine? Oh, boy. Uh, 2008. Mm -hmm. 2007, uh, in the winter, my brother and I tried planting some grapes on our farm. Uh, We planted it. We we didn't really know what we were doing straight up. So we planted this row. and We came and looked at it, like, I think maybe a week later, a month later, and it was a rainbow row. (laughs) It, It wasn't straight. So that next year, we had to dig that back up, replant it. Um, so from the beginning, it had all been learning. I'd been working in a few cellars. At that time, I was at Sokal Blaster. I'd worked at August Cellars the year before that. Um, and just kind of paying attention and looking and asking questions, I'd always been really inquisitive. And a lot of that goes back to doing the reluctant child labor thing. Uh, Cause I would always ask, well, why are we doing this? Mm-hmm. You know, why do we have to raise these wires? Why do we have to prune these vines? Why do we have to deal with the tractor work? Why do we have to thin leaves? Um, harvest was always pretty exciting, so there wasn't a lot of uh, talking back for that process because it was like, let's get the fruit off, let's get it back to Seattle. There was always this you know, this mystery and excitement. And so that's probably another reason why wine, because there's always just this tension and balance and excitement that goes into wine at harvest. Um, it's one of the few crops that we've farmed a lot of crops over the years in Oregon that uh, other people will show up to and they'll just give their time to because there's this whole excitement that's caught in the vintage and Around harvest, it's the end of the year, it's kind of like this, this last notation that you get. So we've grown cherries and we have have apples out there, walnuts are something that we farmed for a while, barley before that, uh, and again, all those crops are kind of just a, a lot of work mm-hmm. and you have to pay people to come out and pick them. And most of the time, the, the crop has got a very limited window to get it to market, to either get it brined as if they're cherries, mm-hmm. we used to do black caps and turn them into jam. Walnuts, maybe you have a couple years so again, all of those things just have this kind of limited preservation versus wine, which was something I saw as a kid. It was like, wow, wine is taken seriously years down the road. People talk about this year, this vintage. So I think there were a lot of subtle seeds that were planted early on for me. Um, it just took a while for me to realize that maybe it was the only thing that would keep me on my toes consistently throughout the year and keep me like trying to navigate, figure out, excited. Um, Cause you know, a lot of life is anticipation. Like once you get to that moment, sometimes you get bored. It's always in that anticipation to that build up. So I think wine does a lot of that for me and, and the grapes too, because it's so much investment of time. Um, everything I do is dry farms, so I don't have any irrigation. They're all self-rooted, which is kind of silly in the light of Fox rub. But I chose to do it that way because I could kind of get off the ground from the beginning and see where it would lead along the way. Um, and so, you know, there's just like this eight years of investment of your time to give to something that you don't even know what it's gonna lead to in the end. So, ultimately, I didn't know wine was gonna be it. I just was like, well, I'm all in, you know, if that was the question was, all right, when did you go all in? I tried a business in 2012, um, after I was let go from another place, which it it just wasn't the best fit. There wasn't enough growth for me there. um, And I was way too persistent for what they were unable to give me, basically. Mm -hmm, mm So that was more of encouragement and kind of fueled my fire of like, well, I guess I should probably believe in myself a little bit more. Uh, that business and I failed. Uh, the one that I had started, we disassociated just because it was getting in the way of my friendship with my, um, him and his wife. And it just became clear to both of us that this was not a good fit. Uh, it was good to dream together, but we just weren't great business partners. And sometimes you have to realize that. So at that point, I was ready to wash my hands of it all. Honestly, I tried uh, making cheese. Which was cool, you know, I loved it. Love cheese. Definitely have a lot of respect for that. But that was even more brutal. You know, working in caves is tough. It's cold. You're around stinky cheese, which I I love and I could devour, but it it didn't feel right in the end. So I think I lasted a season because most of that comes in with the milk, you know, through February. And then it kind of dwindles off in the fall. And by that time, the wine bug was back at me. I needed a harvest. So I worked uh, for Canada's Feast, that was in 2012, did that again for Harvest 2013, which is a lot of fun because you get to learn a lot around all those warm climate varietals, which was different because it also made me then appreciate our P- Pinot, Riesling, Chardonnay, Pinot Gris that we farm versus all those hot climate grapes, you know, because I'd only seen cool climate for the most part in my whole life. So to see these big reds and be a part of that was like, you know, mm-hmm. Kind of enticing to what wine could be and the other side of it and maybe broke the monotony of what i had seen for the last six or seven years or my whole life before that mm-hmm. um yeah mm-hmm. i don't know if i mm-hmm. tailed off too much there mm-hmm.
1: that's great that's great um so uh, uh, was there any you talk about being very inquisitive was there an education process for you when it came time to actually like make your own wine or plant your own grapes what was that education like
2: most of it was through books um My dad and I have a weird way of talking where we don't really talk and a lot of that was as a kid because I kept asking questions because we'd drive down from Seattle and then drive back and every time we leave the farm it was kind of like, well, why were we doing that? Why were we doing that? And he, (laughs) from a very young age, asked me if I ever spoke or ever thought before I spoke. (laughs) And I was like, well, not really, Dad. I just kind of started rambling and go. <laughs> and he was like, well, that's pretty clear. <laughs> so that was kind of always our dynamic. And that went on to me continue to like pester with questions. And so books became the easiest way of trying to tease my brain out to try to find some of those questions or those answers for myself mm-hmm. or, or both maybe, you know. Um, and then at Sokolbasa on day one, I was told basically I could ask one question a day. So maybe there is this reoccurring pattern, if I was to really look at it in a larger... But I've always been really curious, because it, we, we justify work, you know, and farming and making wine. For what, and how, and, and why, why is what that reason is? So I think that's been kind of the inquisitive nature of it. And then along the way, I've realized that um, while I may not have the best palate, my brain just doesn't turn off when it comes to wine and farming. It's just so exciting that I get. It's the one thing I want to show up to do every day, or think about, or find reasons to uh, walk away from, so that I can look forward to going back to it. Mm-hmm. Because if I just am there all the time, it gets really. And I'll be honest, like farming is kind of boring on your own. Um, I do this all on my own. And it's kind of like, ugh. it's a drag at times. Um, but you know, those are the moments you need to probably walk away and find some inspiration. Mm-hmm. Um, whether that's like at the beach or in the mountains or just doing something different, reading or soaking. Um, so I remember where I was going at one point. I tried to walk away from it. That was in 2015. And my mom told me that you've done so much. Why, why would you stop now? You know, it's like getting 90% there and just deciding, ah. And, and I've seen it with my friends, and you're like, oh, but if you just persisted, mm-hmm. you feel like, and you know, but maybe your heart's not in it. So. That's when I decided to come out with the family's name on the, on the bottle, which really has kind of led to um, the feeling of success all of a sudden and fulfillment in this whole process, which is really weird. And then leads to other challenges because then you feel like you're faking it and you're an imposter. And it's like, well, but that's silly, but it's like, no, those a real feeling. So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and then the pandemic happened. And you're like, what, <laughs> pause. <laughs> oh so but you know that's the thing with grape growing is it's pretty resilient to pandemics Mm -hmm. Uh, you're pretty socially isolated so if you've already been mentally trained from that from the beginning you know it's no different being out there in those vineyard rows all on your own staring at the birds listening and podcasts once podcasts came around and i got headphones honestly that changed wine growing because all of a sudden i just wasn't here listening to the highway bored throwing dirt clods at my brother but (laughs) I could actually have something to do, you know, besides just listen to music, but actually like have a subject matter to be engaged in, mm-hmm. learning. So quickly from the evolution of trying to educate myself with books, I tried to stick out classes at Chemeketa and wine. Um, but most of what I found was that <laughs> working in the cellars and being fascinated with the subject matter, I was already so inundated with it that uh, they weren't teaching me the things that I needed to know to try to get the brand off the ground mm-hmm. and that I needed to spend my money getting these rows up and making them straight, you know, and doing it proper so that we could get the tractor by and we could actually try to get more fruit, get barrels and come up with, um, and people may hate the fact that I'd say product, but get, get something in bottles so that I could actually show something from my time, mm-hmm. create some value and figure out, is that what I want? Is that leading the right direction in this process or is that not? Mm-hmm. You know, because a lot of times you get to where you think you want to go and you realize that that doesn't lead anywhere, you know, or there is no there. And so you're always just caught at these moments where you're like, okay, so what's next? Mm-hmm. So what's next? And wine is is a constant uh, hurry up and wait, hurry up and wait, hurry up and wait. Mm-hmm. And that's really the whole thing with like the branding and getting wine, um, and I say like legitimate, but putting it out there so that people are really excited by what you're doing consistently, is it takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of dedication. It just takes years and years and years and years of being uh, excited yourself mm-hmm. you know and making sure that that passion is still there for you mm-hmm. so for me it's it's honestly it's a lot of walking away from it and just letting it be you know because it's the birds it's the coyotes it's all the other animal it's for them really you know if you're taking care of it properly i feel like there's there's a lot that could be shared it's not just for me right it's because mm-hmm. really if i do it right then it's for the next generation or the people who get to then understand from our mistakes how to maybe try to make this a little bit better, mm-hmm. you know, cause we're all on that same quest of um, making something tasty, mm-hmm. you know, that's good now, but also we'll hold on to for a little bit. So we can always talk about those years, especially 2020, those wines are going to be so exciting cause they're going to be polarizing. There's going to be far and few. And it was such a year to be uh, kind of like coveted and coddled cause it really challenged everybody mm-hmm. on mm-hmm. all levels. I haven't talked to anybody that wasn't impacted in some way you know, for better or worse, mm-hmm. and if you made it out of it, <laughs> it still feels like it's going on. Mm-hmm.
1: Absolutely. So we'll talk about the farming first, since obviously that's kind of where it all starts for you. you. You grow up with it, you get away from it, you come back to it. Tell me about, once you kind of dove into wine and once you started planting your own wine grapes, tell me about sort of the philosophy behind it. What, what, you talk about dry farming already. Why, why dry farming and what are some of the practices you've kind of, you've kind of used?
2: Well. So I grew up, and we did everything pretty uh, conventionally. Basically, you know, you just plow everything under every single year, make it as clean as possible. (laughs) Probably not the best for spreading phloxstra. But my dad did everything self-rooted. And I was given advice not to, right from the beginning. Don't do it, Uh, it'll never pay out. But the mindset was, well, if I can get some fruit, then I'll get better at what I'm doing. Maybe I'll take the time to understand what root stock to plant and then I'll you know, adjust and, and curtail that from there. Plus, if I can get 30 years out of these grapes, that might be all the longer I get within uh, the ripening and our water before both are at such a drastic shortage. You know, One's way too hot and we're not having any more water that I need to make different planting decisions for the future. So water was something that was told to me as a child that was gonna become an issue in our future. Um, which I could never imagine because it seemed like it was always raining out there. <laughs> you know, and we're always in the mud and a vehicle was always getting stuck. So it was like, really water? <laughs> but it's become more evident that water in the Northwest and all around the globe is gonna be our next big, big issue. So I've tried to start doing things to help mitigate that along the way. Um, we don't burn anything on the farm anymore. We only chip it or any really large debris actually gets kind of halfway buried into the dirt in between the vines to kind of create um, a nurse log, if you will, mm-hmm. which we found that actually creates its own condensation. Um, it takes longer to break down. It keeps mm-hmm. the soil cooler below it. There's a lot of bugs and worms that like to go up and around there, which is pretty cool. Mm-hmm. And so then we'll pile wood chips on top of that, which also helps quite a bit. You know, So all that's just really holding the water and slowing it down. We also don't till anymore, so we're letting gophers do all that work for us, which drives me insane when you're trying to drive around the place, because it's bumpy and I get aggravated by the bumps. But but at the same time, there's no um, little streams that are running off the hillside. You know, when I was a kid, heavy rains, you'd end up with just these four-inch deep, basically, of ravines running dirt and soil down. And it was said that, you know, grandpa and great-grandfather used to go down to the bottom of the hill every, uh, what was it, like spring or fall, gather up all the dirt, bring it all back up to the top of the hill, spread it back out. And they would just do this as a thing that they, because they would till it all down, and mm-hmm. go pick it all back up. And so it seemed like, well, the first thing we should probably get rid of is that. (laughs) You know, our soil and our water are both so critical Mm -hmm. that we need to come up with better long-term solutions for both of those. So that also helps with the self-rooted, because I'm not spreading as much phylloxera. Um, I've gone through and tried to inoculate the farm with uh, compost teas multiple different times that we brew on site, as well as mycorrhizae. So we're spreading that all out. We have even gone as far to basically propagate our own mycorrhizae in in the trees and then spread that back out that we brew in the compost brewers. So it, I think is all helping, you know, most of it's just one's interpretation, but what I'm not seeing as much is water running off the hillside, Mm -hmm. you know. So all of that is definitely giving me a better long-term hope. Mm-hmm. Uh, right now, the, my biggest concern is honestly just staying on top of blackberries because the briars are ruthless when you, when you farm without using synthetics um, and being ready for fires because uh, fires are the real next future. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't want them sweeping through on these big old vines, you know, because we've got vines that go back to the 80s that mm-hmm. there's a lot of woody material there. Um, so trying to keep that down, keep the grasses mm-hmm. mitigated, mm-hmm. that's all really critical.
1: So tell us about the history of the farm a little bit. Are you still farming
2: the same site that that, that has been farmed throughout? So tell, tell us about the history of that in, in your family. So uh, back in 1952, my grandfather bought the property um, when he got out of the service because he wanted a little piece of property to grow some cherries and berries on. So that's where my dad grew up reluctantly then farming, you know, because it was kind of a pattern. When you listen to him talk about growing asparagus and picking black caps, he doesn't... It's not exactly with pride, but, but he did make it through it. I'm sure there is some pride that's to it, but you know there's definitely like this, this theme of it's, it's ag work. It's hard, and I didn't do it because I wanted to necessarily. But that was across the street from where the actual original Schaed Homestead was, which was on Schaed Robe, uh, and that's where August of August Sellers uh, was, and Gottlieb and Wilhelm, and so they were brothers, uh, traditional German names, very very classic. Um, so the farm in the 50s was all cherries and blackcaps, I believe, and prunes um, that were then in, went in later. Mm-hmm. In 62, we lost a lot of the orchards. I think there were some walnuts there at that time too, and then everything got replanted. So in 1962, October 12th was the Columbus Day Storm, which is kind of an epic piece of Oregon's history, you know, because it led to Irie being planted, mm-hmm. and a lot of places were totaled. The house that I currently live in, 19 oaks fell in that yard, and that house was crushed. Um, so it was a major windstorm after some heavy rains, from what I've, I've heard in history. So we lost all but two old walnuts on our farm. So then every, all these major replantings happened, and I think that was probably then the seed of my dad watching. What he was born in '49, grapes were started in '65 or so, right? So he was '16, '17. So when he planted in '80, you know, it was one of these things where he wanted to try to be ahead of the curve for what the Oregon agri or. Oregon agriculture was gonna be like for the future. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of where we were growing up. And I remember as a kid, I did this paper, and it was like this drawing book that was all about the, the shifting agricultural commodities, like how we had started with one thing and we'd gone on to another, and how I felt like wine grapes were always the thing of the future. And some of that goes back to what I was saying before, that people showed up for it. It was exciting. There was just this, this hype about it. And more importantly than anything else, it seemed like, you know, from a business standpoint, because I've always kind of, uh, and an entrepreneur mindset that isn't it better because it lasts longer? You know, couldn't this be a commodity more so than those other ones if you did it right? So I think that was something that the farming, you know, are farm, we'd always been trying to hustle that piece of ground from the black caps. My grandfather and his two brothers, there were more than just the two, but the two of the brothers, they all had this business where they actually pressed all these black caps off And they'd sell the ink to the USDA for meat carcasses and to Dairy Queen for um, what was before the blizzards time. So yeah, like Sundays and such, you know, because black caps are just inky dark. So I think it was always this like, let's try to do something with this. My grandfather then went on to sell walnuts to Fuddy Duddy Fudge on the coast, you know, because he got the best for the halves. You could get full on halves of the shells, you got the best meat for that. Mm-hmm. So, seeing some of these things along the way kind of led to, oh, maybe wine in the future. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. So, what are your, your, you mentioned kind of that your farm memories not being terribly pleasant growing up and, and kind of a, a weekend, a weekend warrior type, but. Do you have memories of the Oregon wine industry of the 80s? Do you have any memories of interacting with the, with the people in the industry as you were down here?
2: Not really. Um, we didn't really interact with the inter- industry so much. Not some, I didn't. My dad may have. Um, I remember driving by like Sokolwasser Lane and just being like, whoa, there's other, there's other like vineyards. And then one day we got stuck in traffic because the 99 back up there in 18 used to be just absolutely horrendous. You know. And it's improved quite a bit for anybody that comes in and is like, oh, this seems awful. It's not nearly as bad as it used to be. So there was one time where we drove up around on um, Bremen Orchards, and I think you ended up by Archery Summit, and we mm-hmm. saw where the dads lived. And I was pretty young, and my dad at least took us out for this little drive, because he knew that it wasn't going to be any shorter. You know, We ended up further back in traffic. But that was the first glimpse of like, whoa, this is serious. There's people out here who are building these things? Like I've only seen this in the movies. <laughs> this is insane. But beyond that, I didn't really know much about uh, Oregon wine. It wasn't until I was actually working at a Sigma Iota event, because I went to WSU, right? Um, And we were pouring Rex Hill Pinot. It was probably like a 2000 to 2001 Rex Hill Pinot. And our vineyard's right up on top of Rex Hill. And I thought, oh, that's really weird. They're like proud of this Rex Hill thing. We have grapes up on Rex Hill. We're like, I've always been kind of like judgmental of that whole thing. Not necessarily (laughs) proud, you know? Huh. And so I remember trying the wine. I wasn't yet of age, but I'm trying the wine. Be Like, oh, it tastes all right. Huh. That's odd. But that was before I really had had that aha moment. You know, I was still, I think I was probably a freshman or a sophomore trying to find a, a place in society, if you will. Love that.
1: So as you as you got into the industry, you mentioned working at Circle Boss, you mentioned you mentioned working at Kind of Feast. Uh, tell me about the experience for you on the on the production side, on the winemaking side. What what appealed about it? What appealed about it to you? And
2: what were some of the kind of surprising parts of it to you? Uh, what appealed to me were all the challenges that would come up. Consistently, it just seemed like there was never a simple day. Um, I was kind of thrown right into harvest in 08, so I was hired, I think, September 13th of '08, And it was a later harvest, but basically it was time to get things cleaned, be ready to go. And then '08 was one of those harvests where I think we started picking in late September and they didn't stop picking until, you know, it wasn't really November, but the third or fourth week of October. So it was a long, drawn out, slow harvest. So it was just one of those things that I had never been around so many moving parts that were all, was working for such a bigger picture, you know, in such a large facility with so much fruit coming in in all these different places versus uh, when we were picking on our farm, it was just like picking some grapes, you know, and there's not that much to pick. You just gotta pick in, we're putting in little bins here that we're treating it, you know, in 500 pound totes and they're going down the sorting line. It's like, oh, this is a different sort of animal than I've ever been around. So that, uh, that excitement just how much was at stake, because I knew how much had went into wine, so it was like this is on a whole different level, and then being around so many other people that uh, cared so much mm-hmm. that were convinced that this was you know a way of life that mm-hmm. working this hard <laughs> was worth something
1: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you talked about kind of leaving and coming back a lot to wine. I think that's interesting. We've never heard that before. What was it that that you missed?
2: Was it that excitement, that enthusiasm? What was it that kept pulling you back? The opportunity. um, I started out by brewing beer, and I realized that I was just chasing recipes, uh, which was cool. Um, and I love cooking, but I could replicate it. And once I had it kind of adjusted or dialed in or getting better, it it just left. there was no room for error because you had to just kind of get better and better. But with wine, so much of that's in the vineyard and growing and in the dirt and up to the weather. And then how you deal with it at crush and in those next 18 to 24 months, it's kind of all said and done. Mm -hmm. So the the step is so much longer and more drawn out. So you have to be invested over such a longer period of time. Mm Plus there's just that one shot. You get that one opportunity. So some of that beer cleanliness and that mindset definitely helps in the winemaking. but in wine you've just got, everything goes into that one year and then you just do your very best all in that you know haste of decision making of six weeks through the next 24 months basically. And it's similar, but so different to beer. So I found that with wine, it kept me excited because it allowed for a lot of passive time. Mm-hmm because I could actually just completely give up for a while, let it be, and then along the way be back inspired. Meanwhile, nothing's really changed. It's all been okay. With, with beer, it was a lot more work consistently. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And a lot more stainless, and while I love stainless, uh, oak barrels are just magnificent. <laughs>
1: So similar to your to your kind of vineyard philosophy that you talked about earlier, tell me about coming coming into your winemaking philosophy. What, what 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 did you decide you wanted to do when it came to making wine, and and as you moved
2: into your own brand, what did you bring into that from from the philosophy side? Well, I think like anybody that starts out, they want to make wines that are uh, clean, pure, will live forever, but you find that maybe they're way too austere, way too much acid. Um, And then maybe you decide, "Hmm, I want to make some drink juice, wine that people actually want to enjoy, you know, wine that people look forward to when you release, Uh, wine that has uh, character, wine that has soul, wine that is different. So I think for me, a lot of it has been um, learning to drink through the wines that I've crafted and kind of picking them apart to Mm -hmm. understand what was it that I could have done better in that process to make something that I would enjoy drinking more. Mm -hmm. Uh, Some of it's looking to my peers and tasting their wines, uh, side by side with my wines, and uh, trying to imagine how they they made this wine and the process that they they pursued for this. And then some of it's just being okay with the wines that I'm crafting at that time, um, at times. So I think drinking wine, tasting wine, going to IPNC, trying to taste wine from all producing regions, the different pHs, starting to try to really, you know, um, wonder and anticipate why is it that people continue to stay interested in wine? You know, so how do you stay ahead of a trend that you've got this one thing to do one time, one year, and Portland and the local market, because I'm really small in my production this year, we're at, you know, 350 to 375 cases. And our biggest year is around 700 cases. So it's really, really intimate. It allows for a lot of flexibility. Uh, some years I'll make 12 wines. This year I'm only making a few wines. So again, that allows for, I can be creative. Um, and in Portland, the, the market wants creativity, they, they want diversity. I think they want something that's different, you know. There's a lot of Pinot, and there's a lot of Pinot Gris, and there's a lot of really yummy Chardonnay, and there's a lot of Riesling, and there's a lot of Rosé, but where's there room for all these other weird one-offs? And so I think along the way, I got bored with wine and started making wine that kind of satisfied more of that. And the market was either gonna respond negatively or positively, and so far I think they've responded positively. Some of that's our local distributor that I think does a really good job of telling that story. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'll go out before COVID, you know, and try to help talk about it and say why it was, I was making three different rosés, all of one barrel a piece, all with 48 hours of skin contact, you know, because it's kind of silly, but it was just the beauty of wine. And and more importantly than anything else, it was just like, well, it's keeping me engaged. Mm -hmm. And if it's keeping me um, thinking about it and wanting to hustle it and bottle it, then that's enough. And so it's that's been the hardest part is like, well, how do I stay uh, committed to something that I don't know where this leads? Mm-hmm. And right now I, I'm kind of existing in this in-between space, you know, because like the farm will go to my brother and I. I've just chosen to plant a bunch of grapes out there. My parents are saying, hey yeah, continue to run with the project. And I get to make wine in Dave and Amy's space. Uh, because I used to work in their vineyard. So it's kind of this weird in between where I'm like, huh, what's, what does this future look like? And accepting that this is actually completely fine, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of the wine.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> you, you talked earlier about, and a couple times about sort of the, 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 the passion for you and needing, needing to feel that passion to, to keep going. When you're tasting wines, you're tasting your own wines, tasting your friend's wines, are you able to kind of tell when people are really actively engaged, when you were actively engaged versus when people were just kind of going through the numbers? Have you got to that point where you can kind of tell
2: that in a wine? I think so. I think sometimes it only time tells with the wine. Um, But sometimes, yeah, you can usually tell if there's soul in that wine. You know, whether it's just uh, how filtered and polished it is to clean versus you know some rusticity mm-hmm. uh without too much va but there's just this authenticity to a wine that's very genuine i i think you can taste through it i'm um fooled sometimes i also have i've had to um let go of what i think is what i personally want and kind of bend to what i think makes the the better wine for the market mm-hmm. and in 10 years I'll be happy by that decision and so a lot of that is just taking time to be slower and, and more decisive with the actions than necessarily just running through everything in haste because mm-hmm. I definitely have gotten good at going fast but that's not where the magic is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: So you mentioned 2015 is when you kind of took the next step and, and started the, the the label with the family name. and 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 all that came with that. So tell me about that process for you and and the decision and and then the kind of the aftermath for yourself as you were kind of figuring that out.
2: Well, um, so Shod Cellars was something my dad had always been making uh, in our garage. And I'd be pilfering bottles, probably starting around 13 or 14, you know, to share with friends, um, to try to find that experience. They were letting us enjoy wine and imbibe at the dinner table with them. I think to try to show us that this is part of the culture, Mm -hmm. you know, wine and and the lifestyle that goes with all of that. So, Shod Sellers was something that seemed like, oh, it's kind of a no-brainer. You know, my mom suggested and I thought, oh, okay, cool. Well, yeah, but mom, then we have to come up with something we do for a label. Like, what, what do you put on a label that people will uh, take seriously enough that they'll wanna buy, but also I will be willing to show up at tastings and feel like, yeah, that's, that's us. That's mm-hmm. um, unique to me that talks about our farm. So I've always wanted to try to highlight something about our farm that made the farm special. Um, So we've always been a member of the Prescott Bluebird Recovery Program. And so I felt like, oh, the bluebird's something that's pretty special to Oregon, to this area, this western bluebird at least. Mm -hmm. Oh, maybe that'd be something we could do. And these daffodils my dad planted when his mom died the year I was born in 85. Oh, maybe that could be something. You know, so a lot of it's kind of that like, ah, uh, brainstorming, wondering, cause you get so committed to this art on the label or this idea of this label or mm-hmm. uh, what could it be? Is, how, how am I gonna try to sell this idea? Cause that's, all this work leads up to that one thing. Mm-hmm. And if it's a dud, <laughs> you're like, all right, well, let's try again. Mm-hmm. So once I became committed to trying to find something that I felt like sold Oregon um, and kind of had this landscape and, and showed the history of the hillside and kind of, um, honored that, it became easy to stay committed to it. Then the challenges were, well, how do I get ahead of the label challenges? You know, making 12 wines over 700 cases, it's a terrible scale of economy model, you know? And I was wanting to like not sell any wine for the first several years too, which was a terrible model as well. And anybody anybody tried to warn me, you know, that it's not what you make, it's what you sell. I didn't really want to hear them. You know, first off, and I wanted to make these really, really acidic wines that we're going to live forever. So, coming into seeing that growth and seeing that, you know, your brand will only be as successful as you let it be, or mm-hmm. if, if you get behind it, or if you get out of your own way and encourage it and talk about it as if it's a good thing, you know, because mm-hmm. um, I wasn't always convinced along the way that it was. Because I think for the first few years, when you're not trying to sell your wine and you're not really showing it, you know, where does that leave you? <laughs> in terms of your art, you're just like hoarding all your art for yourself? That doesn't work long term. So somewhere in that process, uh, I had a few people that had told me that, you know I'd bet on you basically. I don't know if you know that about yourself, but we are kind of. And I was like, oh, what? Why would you ever do that? But maybe I need to actually show up with more sincerity myself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Which then leads to, you know, one taking it a little more seriously and being more curious yet again, right? You know, because every time you have those moments where you're like, huh. And my mom a couple times, I think is kind of, uh, without so many words, been like, well don't dwindle it or don't uh, swindle your opportunity here. Mm -hmm. You know, because you have a lot that's going in the right direction. So why don't you just stay Um, to path and pursue it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But that goes back to the, you gotta take some time away sometimes to know that, oh, yeah, this is actually a good thing. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, I've had employers and I love working for people. But after all of that, when you then work for yourself, it's like, oh, actually this this freedom is really, really nice. And this freedom can't be replaced in any other way. Um, which the pandemic has only accelerated for a lot of people. And, you know, again, wine growing is kind of fit for that. Selling, not so much, Mm -hmm. you know, because there's a lot more to that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I'm not a super tech savvy person. I've always kind of, um, my dad is really into his computer and email. And I felt like we grew up on the farm and then he was at his desk. And there's nothing against that, but I never wanted to be that myself, and so I've always just been outside. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so trying to then you know, figure out how do you get this brand off the ground just being outside all the time is a little more difficult, because it requires, um, well, it used to, D2C, mm-hmm. you know, a website. So along the way, I then decided, can I challenge this by keeping it as lean as possible, not having a website, and just making it word of mouth so that nobody knows about this. And this kind of goes along the lines of never selling the wine. But making it so that it's as, um, by, by lean, is strong. If it's just me and there's no employees, then when times get tough, it's all on me if I want to continue to show up. And so it, I think trying to be resilient mm-hmm. and create a really, really resilient model in wine, is what I've seen over the last five years. You know, because a lot of this is the growth, because I watch people that are, they're spending big budgets and they're making no money, they're spending small budgets, they're making no money, they're all doing it because they believe it's the right thing to do. But we all need to exist and we have to be able to, you know, I don't have kids, but if I ever did, put them through school, right? Mm -hmm. And put food on the table. And wine is a notoriously expensive, capital hungry business, it really is. So I've been really wanting to prove this business model that You can make it work. You just have to know your right why factor, you know, and and continue to show up and be driven for that. And maybe not do it in what everybody else thinks is the way that it should be done. So, you know, like we don't have a tasting room. I don't have the website. Um, And a lot of that's just my choice. Uh, People encourage me all the time, but. Some of my bottlings that are my favorite are less than 300 bottles and trying to put them online and get them to distributors is more of a headache. So I just sell it all to one person and I'm happy to do that. It's easier um, and I don't make as much money but once you get to a point where you can survive, you don't need more than that. You start to figure out ways to spend that money or go have fun, really. Mm-hmm. So it, it's this weird in between to exist in wine but the brand is allowing for that and a lot of that's just because the the story that we tell about our grape growing. Because a lot of what I'm trying to do now is become more progressive with my grape growing. Like we don't VSP anymore. Um, I don't even use the little clips to hold in the vines. Uh, I don't even tie the wires, tie the vines down to the wire. We just overlap the prior cane with the last vine. You know, some of the things we're doing are, they're silly and people would come out and I guarantee you they would pick it apart. But one of the things that I found is that the grapes are getting too ripe and trying to actually, pick them when there's not so much sugar so that we're not making these big, huge, overripe pinots for my taste, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that's the real challenge. And so doing some of these progressive things, while it certainly is not beautiful looking, and I, and I know all the better in the wine-growing culture, it works and it saves me a heck of a lot of labor. And the fruit's coming in in a decent ripeness with decent pHs and it's not overripe by any means. And I'm happy by that. So, some of that's too, letting my standards be okay. And then maybe it challenges my winemaking. Maybe it challenges my knowledge of uh, wanting it to all be perfect. You know, Mm -hmm. because I could certainly go out there and I could spend hours in the summer vertical shoot positioning. You could just go back and forth and you could thin leaves. You could make it look very, very pretty. But nobody ever sees the vineyard. We're not open to the public. Mm -hmm. Why does it really matter? The birds eat, you know, like 20% of the grapes anyway. So, what? Especially this year with the smoke, you know, like, what is, uh, which I think is good. that These years lead you to a lot of questions. Mm -hmm. Like how much is your heart in this, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, because 2020 was tough and the smoke for some people, it was really, really a burden. Um, We were rather lucky as of now, and I'm going to try to come out with the 2020 Pinos as soon as possible. not even a year in barrel. And I'm not proud of that, but you gotta kind of mitigate your um, business risks sometimes. And I think the market will respond. Mm-hmm. I think they'll be excited mm-hmm. and we'll go into 2021 with the same you know, high hopes of what we can create. <laughs> mm-hmm. But that's part of the brand, right? Is that uh, it's a lot of uh, being nimble and mm-hmm. being able to pivot on the fly. And by being small, it, it's really allowing for that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you've, you've indicated
1: some of, the, some of the wines you're making, and, and as many as 12 or as few as a, a few as a few. So tell me about the decision each year, how many wines you're going to make, what, what you're going to make, and what kind of style you're going to make. A lot
2: of times it just comes in depending on uh, the fruit, the quality of the fruit, how much we have of any individual varietal. Uh, it seems like very few years is everything just, wow, look at that. It's all clean, first off. You know, like last few years, it seems like I've been battling mildew and Mueller uh, for whatever reason, but everything else looks really good. I've been prioritizing thinning leaves and being on top of the Chardonnay early to not. But as soon as you start focusing over here, you know, something else goes awry over here. So a lot of it's just how much I get of any given crop and then I'll kind of dictate where that fruit goes. Mm-hmm. So we'll spend a few days picking. This last year we picked for four days straight and we processed for four hours and that was the entire harvest. (laughs) Which was kind of nice because it meant we used the equipment once. You know, instead of like having to like, pick a little bit, clean it, pick a little bit, clean it, pick a little bit, clean it. It was, you know, pick, 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 pick. Oh, I'm exhausted, let's go process this and let's call it good. So that's an easy decision to just make fewer wines. I also saw a lot of what I feel like Um, my best skill is, is just anticipating the trends Mm -hmm. and not being so committed like, um, if I had 10 people telling me what to do, I I should probably follow the board of directors decision on this and what we should do and how we should do it and what the owner wants, what the vineyard manager, what the winemaker, but when you're trying to juggle all those roles, sometimes you wake up the next morning, you know the answer, you know, it's pretty straightforward. Sometimes when you're picking, you know that that's a waste or there's just not enough fruit. I can see this through and I've seen how this is too much of an experiment versus a success. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times it's trying to anticipate, this last year it was like, there's gonna be a lot of rosé. Probably should not make rosé in 2020 mm-hmm. um, if I can help it. Mm-hmm. You know, Just mm-hmm. because there's gonna be a glut and a rosé coming out just because it's the easiest way to get your grapes off the skins quick or white Pinot. Mm-hmm. So I chose not to make either. I didn't really have uh, the luxury. We had very little fruit and it seemed like a no-brainer because the bread and butter is Pinot Noir Red. You know, that's the one that keeps the business going and allows me to continue to farm is the Bluebird Pinot. So that was kind of like, uh. I'm always curious about what if. So that's that being intrigued by the wines. And so sometimes when you're out there, there's just that what if. Like I tried making skin (laughs) macerated Chardonnay a few years. Not a good idea, but it was fun, and I know not to do it again, you know? So there's, there's those certain things where you just get these wild hairs. And sometimes you just don't know. I didn't make Victor in 2020. I had the opportunity to. I didn't see it selling well after 17. The 18 sold out quickly, which you can't anticipate. Then the 19 got picked up as a glass pour, which you don't expect. Meanwhile, you've already decided not to make the 2020. So, And sometimes I've always joked that like, well, I want to tease the market. And all my distributors are like, well, you're going to be forgotten about. So good luck with that strategy, <laughs> you know, because there's, you don't make enough, first off, for the market to even notice you let alone, you going to tease them. But part of this whole thing is uh, realizing how naive you are, <laughs> you know, like, oh boy, oh yes, young man, you know. But, but that's kind of the fun part too, right? You know, because you realize, oh yeah, well, I'll show up with more fruit. So recently I've been inspired to plant more vines, which I didn't know was gonna ever happen based upon the amount of work I'd put into it before, how I felt about it. I'd gotten to a point where I thought things were good, and then I decided last year, you know what? If we're gonna do this based upon what we should do to make this work, and if I wanna actually hire people, we need a lot more vines. I gotta go all in yet again. Mm -hmm. And I oh that's ridiculous, Forrest, are you serious? So now these nurseries and the rows and the plantings, and talk about progressive viticulture, it's like we're using the trees as the vineyard trellising. So it's really pleasant in the afternoon because you're in the shade working and you're eating fruit right off the tree while you're training up vines. Meanwhile, when you're trying to drive the tractor through, you know, you're fighting canes that are flying at you from these trees. So it's, it's not the perfect scenario by any means, but it is going to help with our water retention. It's great for the shade. It's good for the food. The birds are there going at the grapes just as fast as you are because now they're in the trees right next to you. So it looks like a mess, but nature's kind of messy, right? You know, and, and again, when people hear about it, they just roll their eyes. And they can't imagine that that actually exists, but it just adds to that story, you know, Mm -hmm. because it's really, it's the story that tells, sells wine better than anything else. Mm -hmm. It's, the the wine has to be good enough for people to want to share it and enjoy it. Um, I really think the wines are better on day two or three because I'm trying to just turn them as fast as possible at this point. But it's that story that people want to talk about. Mm -hmm. You know, it's that word of mouth that will really catch fire. Mm
1: -hmm. So with this, Progressive agriculture is it mostly is it ideas that come to you based out of necessity, or is it things you're
2: reading and seeing elsewhere and trying to implement on your own? Most of the time, I'm being goaded by other people <laughs> that uh, think that I'm willing to take the chance and the risk because I really don't have that much to lose. Mm-hmm. You know, by other people, it's my time, really. You know, like so the budget I put into labor, my my time, whatever. But that's all I have to lose, really. And if, so if I learn from it, isn't that chalked up to a win? It's only if I don't learn from it that it really becomes a mistake. So, like the no VSPing, somebody told me, like, hey, you might want to check that out. I'm not really doing it, but you could try it. Or come up with your own system. And so, you know, it's like, oh, well, I wonder if it'll work. There's certain things that you need to do. You need to um, go out and disbud. You need to sucker. Suckering's really annoying. Humans don't necessarily need to do it. You could probably use sheep. Mm-hmm. Um, I've heard of systems and seen some footage of that. Mm-hmm. But, that, so that's kind of listening, seeing. Uh, something i have been experimenting now is for the entire life of this property, we've always taken all the rocks and piled them in one place, which now the briars and the poison oak grow in. So then I have to fight the poison oak and the briars to just keep them out of these rocks. So I've been taking all the rocks back out of there and putting them back in the vineyard, and I've noticed that they actually create their own condensation with the diurnal cycles. So when we get really really hot days and then really really cool days, they'll actually create their own cool uh, water source in these vines that's dripping in. They're also when it's really really cold out so we have snow, they're the first to defrost and create some warmth as well. So it's just kind of using some of these weird tactics that I've seen practiced in other cultures, desert cultures and infilt- you know, kind of I was going to say infiltrating them, but putting them back into the vineyard mm-hmm. and farming and it's not Again, it's kind of letting nature replicate itself and how can I do that? Uh, But a lot of times it's just suggested. Like, hey, have you thought of that? And then it's like grapes have always grown on trees. It's not until later. And I tried doing all metal posts and that works really well. It's really clean, it's really organized. And then I drove through Nevada and I saw what all these tailings look like from these mining operations. So I came back to the farm with just kind of a new perspective of maybe I can go create all my own posts. And so recently I went out and I harvested a bunch of cedar, and then you can split it all and you can make all your own posts, pack them in with gravel. So it's, it's again, that story of like, well, I went and camped out for a week and we hauled all this cedar out, um, which just adds more to the process. It's the way my grandpa and my dad did it originally. And it's not so much the cost as, it's just really, really uh, rustic. And it creates just this, layers of effort that are associated with that wine and in those vines that when you're out there looking at it, um, all the other efforts that you put into it, you, you start to put respect to it. So that what you're doing now, no matter how much it's hard work, you're like, I got this, mm-hmm. you know, I can do this. Cause I did all these other steps, all those other little moments of success have compiled to give me the moment to be here now. Mm-hmm. So that's what's really kind of been exciting is that you start to see that through after about a decade of actually doing it with intention and it starts to build upon itself a little bit. Because mm-hmm. before you're just doing it because your dad tells you to and, and <laughs> it's like oh. And so now I'm timing it because as a kid coming down from Seattle you couldn't really time when you work the soil, when you put up the vines. We'd show up when we show up, you know, it was mm-hmm. like MLK weekend, President's weekend, Um, and I could go on on these weekends, but basically there were these certain times and so you'd have to always respond and play reactive farming, you know? And so if you're trying to pound soil or pound posts in the soil and it's July, it's not the greatest time, you know? Or you'd get there and it's like the canes have been overgrown for the last month. Nobody has spent any time out here. What is going on with the place? So that's that sort of distance too that it's been nice to see the vineyard. So I've always known that it's like, you know, we're just over fussing. We really just don't have enough to do. Um, as humans, and so we're gonna get out here and over, la 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 la. You know, and for is just kind of let them be. These vines are pretty resilient mm-hmm. considering how they make it through 100 days of drought out here and they're still pretty vigorous and green. You know, that's an impressive feat. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Especially when you dig up the plants, uh, the self rooted ones, they don't even have roots. They'll have green growth and there's no roots. You're know, like this is insane versus the resistant rootstock. It's got this huge, big with tiny, tiny little leaves. And you're like, well I can see why there's kind of a mismatch of vigor here mm-hmm. and why it takes a while for them to really get, you know, worked into the ground. But side by side it's just kind of absolutely fascinating. These self-rooted plants are able to turn out something that's so powerful, mm-hmm. you know, that we can extract and then just like sit there and pontificate life over. I mean, it's really a crazy thing, right? <laughs> so as you as you
1: grow with the, in the vineyard and, and, and I assume production will grow as well and is, and is the goal is it, is it a sustainable model for you what, what's your plan as, as you grow in,
2: in the future well it all depends um, I believe it's a it's a sustainable model as long as I don't Uh, grow too far, too fast. Mm -hmm. Um, We've grown as much as 10%, 15% in one year just because of the farm's production. I am trying to secure more of the fruit on the farm for myself instead of us selling it to anybody else. uh, Mostly because I I need more Pinot for what the market is consuming uh, and our price point. I think most importantly, as long as it brings me enjoyment, then we can continue to grow as much as possible. Uh, I do have dreams of planting some other properties in other mm, climates, so to say, you know, further east, the Hood River area, because they grow warmer climate grapes. And I just like the challenge of being spread thin. I don't know why, I just love that. And so this last year has been weird because I haven't worked for anybody else and I haven't been spread thin, mm-hmm. but I've kind of tried to fill the time otherwise. Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of been boring, you know, cause I'm not taking on too much mm-hmm. for the first time ever. <laughs> um, and so now I'm trying to figure out, well, well why? And is that okay? Mm-hmm. And do I want more? And I've had some other people say like, well, you know, maybe being small is all right. If you're getting away with having fun and not working so hard, maybe that's all right. You know, do you need to be huge? So, but I just, I really honestly like wine and love growing grapes. It's a challenge that just continues to get you to show up because something is always going awry. Everything seems okay and something's going awry. And so you're trying to like stay on top of all those different things. I like to joke that it's kind of like you have all six burners on high and you're trying to cook and nice some pasta at the same time but then you decide to walk out of the kitchen and then come back to see how what happens, you know? And that's kind of like what life feels like as soon as you leave for 10 days and you come back in the middle of the growing season, it's like frantic anxiety and it takes a moment to kind of like, oh, you know, simmer down, evaluate what is actually critical. You know, and sometimes that's life too, like what actually makes a big difference, but we get really worked up in, um, in these moments. Mm-hmm. So sometimes no news is good news. Just kind of when everything is actually silent and moving along, that's like a good hustle but we're always chasing um, the big adrenaline surges. Mm-hmm. And wine doesn't do that well, you know, because wine is such like a long, long, slow, tedious, you know, it takes 30 years to have a good career in wine and, and really make that wine that you're pretty happy with, you know, because some of it's getting out of your way, some of it's letting the wine be, some of it's the perfect vintage. And it's an interesting, interesting dichotomy
1: you're, you're describing there, I like that. So with um, with the, uh, again on the, kind of on the future of
2: sean what what do you see as you look ahead for the future of the brand what what do you hope for? Well, I'd like us to have our own space uh, just because I feel like it will feel more real mm-hmm. It will be uh, this tangible thing that the brand in my efforts created more so than what this is
3: mm-hmm.
2: uh, This has been a huge learning opportunity working with Dave and Amy they're Influence in the Valley, uh, and Dave's passion for wine. I've grown a lot through that. Mm -hmm. And so they've allowed me to see that I like this, that I I enjoy these challenges. So I I want us to have our own space. I really, really, it occurred to me the other day, because I've been trying to figure that out for the last year. What is it I want? Uh, Do I just want a small pole barn in my backyard? Make wine, continue to keep it lean. You know, it's hard to mess with lean. Um, but at the same time, like D2C is going to come back around, and I want to sell the farm lifestyle. I love bringing fruit to market and just giving it to people because this is really, really local. It's, it's not technically organic because I'm not certified, but I don't spray it. The birds do all the work for it. We just go and hack back at it with chainsaws, and then whatever pollinates, pollinates, and we go and eat it. And so I love taking that to people. And there's a lot more stories I could go into with that with fruit, my grandpa, my dad, because we've been in this valley since 1903. There's just a lot of history that we have of farming and hustling and trying to figure out how you can sell that lifestyle. And along the way, I I decided, well, I, I like food. And I want people to be able to and enjoy that and see that it doesn't need to be like this, that you can kind of set your own trail and do your own thing. So what occurred to me is that I'd like it to be a state. I really want it to be a state. And so now I've got to figure out the challenges within the other property holders, access. Mm-hmm. Uh, what will what will I be okay with? And not just settling, but what is it that I like? And maybe it's not on our property, maybe it's somewhere else, mm-hmm. you know? and. Maybe it's hot climate, maybe it's some limestone, maybe it's somewhere completely different. I've, I love this idea of um, being out in the middle of nowhere trying to grow grapes, kind of like Hirsch originally was. Because those wines are magnificent. Mm-hmm. And for his ability to see something like that on the Sonoma Coast was really cool. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm always just, I've been trying to convince my parents for the last three or four years, like, hey, let's buy more <laughs> property. I can barely manage what I got going on, but, but let's buy more, please, I'll show up for it, please. Mm-hmm. And they're always just like, Ay, oh, yeah, yeah, right, Forrest, really, really. So part of it's kind of showing them like, hey, no, I'm taking this more seriously. And part of that's showing me, hey, I'm taking this more seriously. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But then you have years like 2020 and you're like, well, it's one of those times where you just have to kind of like see, does it even make it through? Because mm-hmm. if you can't make it through now, it doesn't really matter how resilient or lean it is, that's not, a good future sign. Although watching the um, wineries come in and the growth of the Oregon wine scene is pretty exciting. Mm -hmm. Because now I feel like I'm a part of this really, really special thing that's a global thing. Oregon wine has got a global impact and it's really exciting. Mm
1: You talked about the space a couple times, obviously we're, we're at Westry here in, Mc, in McMinnville and you, you talked about kind of history of David and Amy. Uh, what's it been like, what, what, what's the shared facility like? Making making wine in someone else's space, you talk about kind of wanting your own space. How do you make it work? How, how
2: does that work kind of
1: logistically for you?
2: Well, they're really flexible with me. <laughs> they're, they're really, really kind to me. Um, it 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 hasn't been easy because we've grown quite a bit and we've started, you know, stacking more and more in and, and for the last couple of years I've just kind of been making outside wine, <laughs> letting it be. It's outside. I'm not proud of it, but hey, you know, I'm making it do. If I need it to finish, I'll bring it in and aquarium, heat it, you know, and, and we'll get it done and then we'll continue on. Mm-hmm. So the, the flexibility is huge because we don't have a lot of space and we're trying to make it work and we're trying to dance around each other and be respectful of each other's time um, and equipment and usage. So in the beginning, I always thought, because I came into this and I was like, well, I'm going to have to exist in the cracks. <laughs> like I don't know how you actually, like how am I going to be able to make wine here? What? <laughs> what are they? It was really generous of him to offer, but hmm. You know, it was basically because they had a big December of forklift in the press, which, you know, I didn't have any of but I thought, yes, I'm sold on, on that space. And so then from there, um, as some of their production has decreased, I've been able to continue to use some of their equipment, their fermenters, you know, and just continue, so they've been really giving um, and a huge part of my gratitude practice because I'm always reminded like, wow, I wouldn't really be able to get away with this without them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh but at the same time I don't know many other wineries partial employers that are like them that I've met where they've you know made it work the way that they have in this space working in the industry piecing it together slowly but surely and getting there so they acknowledge the uh the grit that I've provided as well because I think we see that in each other quite a bit mm-hmm. Dave and I are so much alike sometimes that I've acknowledged that I I can't Come to the facility if he's here because we will just chat, 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 and nothing gets done. And I'm just distracting him, and then I don't want to just be the distraction to him as much as I, I do adore that time, you know. So, it that's been an interesting growth too because mm-hmm. I've had to go from him just being an employer and an advisor and then a consultant to. A friend and advisor Mm -hmm. and no longer the employer and I still refer to him as my boss and it's like well it's not quite that way anymore you know it hasn't been for a little bit but but that's just kind of you know how I I look up to them Mm -hmm. so yeah this space is one of those things where it's great for production because you're in McMinnville you need food, it's there. You need coffee, it's here. Industrial gases, it's all here. Davison's, it's right there. Mm-hmm. So that's really cool. Semis can roll up and out. Utilities, it's all right here. It's really nice. Um, and I don't take that for, for granted. Mm-hmm. But you can't call it a state when you're isolated like this mm-hmm. down here. Um, and I think while the Greenery District is growing, it. The faux chateau just doesn't have the same look as being up in the vineyard on the hillside looking about over the valley, Mm -hmm. uh, where it's just so picturesque. Mm -hmm. And it's where I spend so much of my time because it's just so picturesque. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Because you're just staring off into nature, at the trees, and you know, and you can just hear things. It's just, it's a different sort of scene. So um, I'm always proud to come in here because it's really where we do our best work. You know, because you take those grapes and then you really turn it into the highest form here. But I know that I'll be even more proud to to used this as a stepping stone to get to the next place. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I've always told Dave and Amy, too, that it's like, hey, I'm going to build it big so you guys can bring your guys' catastrophe up with me. You know, <laughs> we'll just keep this thing going. Because <laughs> it's it's kind of one of those things where uh, in wine, there's friendships that are created, and wine is cutthroat. Wine is absolutely cutthroat. but when you're small and people are local, there's you know it fosters more of that friendship and that networking and those relationships. And I think that really uh, on some levels is more than anything else.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So before uh, before we move on to the kind of the end of this, I'm curious. I know you mentioned August Sellers earlier. What's what is the connection with August Sellers? So
2: what's the story of that place with you? So uh, let's see. August was my um, great grandfather, and then his uh, he had oh, six or seven kids. I should know that exact number, but either way. Um, Clarence was the oldest, and Clarence's kids, Jim and Tom, um, both run the winery there. Jim recently passed away, Shod, and Tom Shod now manages it. And then Clarence's youngest brother, Ben, was my grandfather. Mm -hmm. So the oldest and the youngest of Augusts were kind of always pretty close. Mm -hmm. And so I worked there in 07. Um, We have property adjacent to them. Mm -hmm. They lease some vineyards to uh, John Davidson and Walnut City, La Quintera. And they grow walnuts themselves, but they're, basically other than that, we're, that's as far as our relationship goes. I stored some barrels there once, um, and I love the cellars. It's just not, for me, it's so far out of the way to be in Newburg and not have everything on the estate mm-hmm. that I've never pursued it further than that. Mm-hmm. Not to say that I won't, as production grows, because um, they have really good equipment and they're beautiful cellars. Mm-hmm. It just has never been the the right time and place for me to pursue uh, making wine there. And during harvest, it is such a there's so many moving parts going on that I versus here where the freedom, you know, because sometimes like this last year I didn't even see anybody but my intern who came up from San Jose and we worked together and we were here and I think we even took a day or two off. (laughs) We're just like what? What sort of harvest does that? But it was nice because going into it with 2020 being what it was and everything up in the air with smoke, why get yourself so worked up over it? It may still yet not pan out, you know? And so it's like, I don't really wanna stay up all night and and beat myself up. But it's easy to do in wine, you know, to get really concerned, overworked, neurotic, overwhelmed, because there's so much at risk. Mm -hmm. And it's really easy to overthink it because everything matters that moment when it's re- still not really, you know, there's no uh, destination for what it's gonna be.
3: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely.
2: So we talked about
1: 2020 a few times and obviously of the pandemic as well as the smoke. T- tell me about uh, the pandemic and you, you mentioned that it didn't really affect your farming a whole lot, but how did it affect your wine life and, and
2: how did you see it affect the industry? Hmm. I, th- Feel like the industry pulled together as much as they could uh, in response to the pandemic. Um, I know that I became closer with the friends that I have uh, because it became <laughs> the only circle you really have <laughs> are those people to reach out to. Um, I also f- had the f- fortune of several people reaching out to me in terms of uh they like we're distributors concerned is it, are you going to make it uh which made me feel like it actually mattered because sometimes you know when you're just out there doing it and like when i was just hoarding all my mind, it didn't feel like it mattered mm-hmm. and so when other people come up to you and they're they're worried they're concerned they're they cherish what you're already putting out you uh you start to you know, take it more seriously and want to show up and, and, and then reach out to other people to try to pay it forward a little bit. Mm-hmm. So that's why I think, I feel like the industry did kind of come together. I, I don't get to see as many people, but I certainly, the few people that I have that are close, it seems like they've all, they're helping each other more. Mm-hmm. You mentioned uh,
1: the kind of the excitement, your excitement over the kind of the growth of Oregon's wine industry and the, and the kind of global impact it has. Tell me about the the biggest changes you've seen in the industry since you've been a part of it. Are what what's different about it now versus when you came into it?
2: Probably the farming, uh, tourism, definitely. I mean, the agritourism. It's hard to be understated what the power of that's done. But I'd say the farming, just the the resistant rootstock, irrigation, tight spacing. That's really the the wave of one future, uh, automated picking. Um, and so then just the size, you know, because right away that correlates to how much do you have to produce to be able to pay for all of that. And so the size and, term, and now we're, it's just it seems like there's a lot of discrepancy between what it takes to get started and what, where it takes to really be uh, good at what you're doing and how challenged that is. And I have a lot of respect for that because it's like, oh, there's so many layers to this thing. And you really almost have to be separated or specialized. You know, you can't be trying to do so many different things and be good at any one of them. More of like, well, you hire vineyard people or you hire winery people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's really nice to be able to just kind of get the vineyard contracts dialed in, get the fruit to show up. That's not how we do it, but. I could see how beautiful that would be, you know, because it really allows you to stay focused on making the wine and not feeling like you're trying to constantly be putting out fires, mm-hmm. uh, which is how it starts to feel like come spring, mm-hmm. where, where it's just like you're juggling a lot of different things, a lot of moving parts. Um, I used to never say no, and so I kept taking on more and more and not until recently did I start to say, eh, I may not be wise. <laughs> What is wisdom really? But... <laughs> 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 and with the,
1: with your with your kind of farming practices, are there things you're looking forward to trying? Anything anything kind of on the horizon for you in terms of farming practices or in terms of of grapes you want to work with?
2: Farming practices. I kind of want to see if the <laughs> the orchard trellising is gonna work before. But at the same time, I've now started planting fruit trees where my wooden posts are. So when those wooden posts fail, there's fruit trees there. So it's kind of like, I'm kind of convinced it's going to, but not 100%, although it's gonna make automation. You'll never be able to machine pick it. You can't run hedgers, because the trees will take them out. So, but the thing is, at the same time, um, we've been ripped off a couple different times. And people always go after the power tools. Nobody wants to steal your hand tools, like your actual hand-operated shears, your pole pruning saws. Everybody wants the chainsaws and the big, powerful things. So if you have to do it by hand and it keeps you actually out there, like physically doing this work, it means that maybe it is a, a more resilient model, if you, for lack of better. <laughs> so I, there are things I want to learn. I, I really, more than anything else, wanted grow different grapes in other areas. Uh, I've always kind of been obsessed with these lighter-bodied perfumey reds of like chateauneuf de pop in the Rhone area. So like Cunois, Mauvedras, and so. Um, they're just very nuanced and understated. And I think that they provide a lot of beauty in the wine world, because they're not as big and powerful as Cab. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're kind of intriguing. And they're not Pinot. But I think that they may have something to offer. I really like Nebbiolo. I think that that would be really good in the gorge. Mm -hmm. I'm also not convinced that we shouldn't be trying to seek out some limestone for Chardonnay uh, and Riesling. Mm -hmm. And that the Riesling future in Oregon may be short-lived. As it's getting warmer and warmer, we may only have another 20 years of growing good Riesling in most elevations without really seeking unique little vineyard pockets. Uh, As the fires continue to persist, Uh, Let alone smoke taint, I think that there's going to be more opportunity for land clearing and planting, Mm -hmm. not for better or worse. I mean, we need our trees and our rain, but, and it's all so closely intertwined. You know, the Mm -hmm. faster we log, the less trees we get, the less rain we're going to get, and those are all closely related.
1: And so, for the for the Oregon industry in general, uh, what do you see for the future? What, what, what's coming down the the road in the next five, ten years, or what are you looking forward to? Maybe, maybe
2: what are you fearful of? Well, I'm fearful of an overproduction. There's a lot being produced. Um, I just see it sometimes in the market because we're starting to get back on vintages. When you go out before. last, I haven't been out in a while, but previously, you know, when you're seeing 16s and 17s, it just shows that people are behind in their sellers uh, in terms of selling Mm -hmm. and being on top of, you know, current releases should, in my mind, and it's hard not to be jaded by drinking younger wine, but, you know, like 18s are a reasonable time. We're in a decent point now to be selling that if you're selling it through consistently and not getting so far behind where management of inventory is overwhelming, you know, because it's, it's hard for wineries to make money when they're trying to juggle three or four years in bottle. That, that becomes a lot at the same time as the act of growing season in the wine and barrel, just from what I've been able to ascertain. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a challenge. Um, at the same time, Oregon wine being further and wider planted, our terroir is difficult to farm vast swaths of ground. There are only a few AVAs in areas where you can really do that well. You know, because it's a lot of tiny little sloped hillsides And it's difficult to just mass plant like they would in other places. And so I think that's a good thing. Um, I do see more, uh, there could be potentially more AVAs. I haven't heard about stuff like that, but I could see that happening as more people get behind um, wanting to do it, as well as the price of the current AVAs continues to go up. The challenges of people being able to plant in those areas, it's gonna continue to force people into other new spots, which I think is cool because I enjoy tasting the wine out of these new micro-regions out of Oregon, macro-regions, mm-hmm. different, different locales because the wines are unique and they may be able to get away with doing different things. Sauve Blanc seems to be something that people are trying. I know people are trying Nebbiolo, uh, Syrah, I've got a little bit planted. I've been told that I should probably try Cab Franc here in the valley. Uh, some of it seems like I want to go with what's proven. Um, some Sometimes it's like, oh, maybe we can plant a little bit of this or that. I'm kind of milking the Pinot thing right now because that may not be what we get to do forever. Uh, I planted a lot of Maréchal Foch last year and Leon Melot, as well as some Gewurztraminer and Pinot Gris. A lot of Pinot Meunier I put in the ground uh, as well as Draper Selection Chardonnay. So a lot of this is just all to see what works, what doesn't. Um, some of it's gonna like our soil, some of it's gonna like our moisture, some of it's gonna like my uh, do nothing approach. You know, cause it's really survival of the fittest out there. If you can make it, cool. If not, then sorry. Mm-hmm. And that's then from phylloxera, that's from no watering, that's from like, you, you plant it and you come and visit it a few times, you just pass by it. Um, I used to have dogs and they would take out vines, they'd just sit on them, they would chew on them. And it, again, it was, it's been survival of the fittest, <laughs> which is kind of fun because it, it allows for the, to not be so care, like you can be more carefree, mm-hmm. which means that it's just kind of uh, exciting still, because when it works out when you're carefree, it's even more like, whoa! It's magnificent. And it's hard to then do that with the business, you know, because as the business becomes something that you're worried about in those numbers. Uh, I was joking with a friend though, that's like, I know basically what will, our mins and our highs for what we could earn based upon what we produce in 2020. So, you know, in nine months, I'll know that for 2021. Mm-hmm. And it won't even take that long. And I'll, so at that point, then it's all like, ah, what else do you do with your time? Because mm-hmm. you can't really do too much more Without planting lots more grapes, and that's the thing: self-rooted, non-irrigated. It takes about a decade to get <laughs> the vines up and rolling. So when you're like, "All right, I'm going to get you some more wine," because the market wants more wine, it's going to be a decade though. You're ready, right? I hope you're still hip on our our wine by then.
1: <laughs> you talked a couple times about your your kind of your sales philosophy, which is a fairly unique one, I will say. Uh, tell me about. Uh, Tell me about finding people, how people find your wine
2: and, and finding people who are excited about it. Mm. Well, originally it was word of mouth. And then I just kind of put it in the distributor's court mm-hmm. to see if they could do it. Um, I went out and hustled it for mm, six or seven months in person around Oregon to hear feedback from the market. Uh, so that when I went back to the drawing board, that was kind of May through September. Before that harvest of 18, I could reevaluate what they would like and what I didn't like about what I was hearing about the wines um, because we're going to always be pretty self critical. I think if you're a good winemaker, and hopefully you are. And so, hearing what people didn't like and what they liked, I wanted to then go back in 18 and do that. But that did lead to having a distributor who. Um, is pretty hip on natural wine. And so David Autry kept telling me you're making natural wine, you need to add more sulfur, blah blah blah. And I was like, David, I'm adding sulfur. Like, whoa, whoa, what are you talking about? And then I kind of just accepted it.
1: So obviously you took kind of an interesting path into the industry, but I'm curious if someone were to ask you for advice or words of wisdom on joining the Oregon wine industry, what what would you tell them? <laughs>
3: Um mm.
2: Do it if you love it. Go a few other places while you can before you end up locked down. I didn't take advantage of that. Uh, I don't regret that necessarily, because uh, it wasn't my path. Although it, it would be fun and now I want to so if you find oregon also make sure that you've checked out some other places because i think once you end up here you just kind of start to become swoon with the place and it's hard to imagine what being elsewhere would be like for me so that would be one thing also uh work for as many different producers as possible just because it'll you'll learn a lot from that i think that's important It's also a trudge. (laughs) You know, there's no easy path. (laughs) So, just be ready for that. (laughs) And it's worth betting on yourself. I think that's actually a good piece of advice. Because, I don't know, it's nice to work for other people, but it's really, really wonderful to have that freedom of your own time. Mm -hmm. And being small is okay. If you can make that work, you know, Way less stress. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Like that. It's good advice. Good advice. Appreciate it. So it's all the questions that I have for you. Is there anything I didn't ask that I should have? Anything we didn't cover here today? We should have covered. No,
2: I think we did pretty thorough. <laughs> Excellent.
1: Thank you so much for your time, for your hospitality here in the in the, in the faux chateau. Uh, we appreciate it, and uh, we'll go ahead and let you off the hook. Wonderful. Thank you.
0: The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. Special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have assisted on our oral history interviews.